You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning and welcome yet again to Grace Community Church. Uh, thank you for being here this morning. Um, we have folks I know as far away as Florida that have decided to come to church here this morning. That was an early start for them, uh, actually visiting. We have students in, students out. It's good to have all of our students back. Back there, I see you back there, Mandy, and others. And a lot of students going on fall break. Well, I, I have been reading, and, and thank you, by the way, uh, worship team, so much. They're, I am more in their debt than you know, very carefully, and decided to go this night. They said they considered it this morning uh, very carefully and decided to go with the switcheroo, so I'm very grateful for that. Um, uh, I've been reading uh, Victor Hugo's classic, Les Miserables. Uh, I've been reading it for about a month now. Actually, I'm listening to it. It's, I've just only recently sped up the, the reading a little bit because I love this guy's voice, you know, the way he's, he's got this French accent a little bit or says the French words and the names and all the places uh, beautifully. It's a long book, and even though I'm only about nine hours into this 60-hour reading of the book, uh, time and again in this story, characters who have run afoul of the law for the smallest offenses uh, <coughs> and are about to suffer the, the severe consequences of <coughs> early 19th century, century France, uh, French law, are rescued by the very person that they have wronged and even hated. Uh, when you read about Australia, a lot of times when we go to Australia, you're, you're, you're very aware that it was started as a prison colony. Prison colony, it was, it was populated by people who uh, like stole a book on Honduras, someone did. Someone stole five pieces of bread. And they were sent to Australia, for goodness sake. So this, this, this is the context uh, of the setting for Les Miserables. Um, and and it's a story of love and grace that points to the kind of love that God has for miserable, ungrateful, vindictive creatures who have committed far more than small and petty crimes and deserve nothing but condemnation from a holy and just creator. Fortunately for us, and very fortunate indeed it is, he is also a redeeming God who has made a way to rescue us from our sin and its consequences. We've been singing about it all morning. Uh, what is it about human nature that desperately wants to earn salvation? We all want to. Not many people at all are excited about the free gift of grace that is found in Jesus Christ. We don't... <laughs> like to think of ourselves, excuse me, <clears throat> we don't like to think of ourselves as hopelessly lost or helpless to stand innocent before God. Well, okay, not fully innocent, but hey, I'm not that bad. I'm surely not as bad as the person across the row from me. I know about that person. It's fine for Jesus to be my example, but to say that there is nothing good in me to enable me 
To present myself to God as worthy of being in His presence. There is nothing that I can do. Please. As John Stott said, nothing keeps people away from Christ more than their inability to see their need for Him. Or their unwillingness to admit it. Today's message will address both our need for Christ and the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross to meet our deepest need. Not only, not only do we need to be forgiven of our sin, but we need to stand fully righteous before God. That's a big need. Why is there a need for such a sermon in the Christian church and a Christian church? Because so many have failed to recognize that Christ alone is enough for salvation. October 2017 marks the 500 year anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant movement known as the Reformation in which churches moved away from the Roman Catholic Church because of, in, uh, of differences in interpretation of Scripture. Solus Christus, Solus Christus, as David said, you know, it's like sola gratia, sola gratia. You say tomato, I say tomato, you know, one of those. It's, you, you hear all different kinds of pronunciations. I'm sure there's an absolute correct pronunciation. The only um, Latin word I remember from school is pulcra. It's beautiful. It's what I used to tell all the girls. Oh, pulcra, you're pulcra. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, so, solus Christus. Christ alone is one of the five solas that distinguishes Protestant doctrine from Roman Catholic doctrine. We believe, we believe that Scripture alone, not what the Pope says, not what our hearts say, and although the gospel is logical if counterintuitive, it is not where logic leads us, but Scripture alone points to salvation in Christ alone as our only Hope of salvation. We are saved by God's grace alone through faith alone. Not good works on our part in any measure. And our salvation is to the glory of God alone. <laughs> Amen to that. We need to answer two primary questions about Christ alone. And I'm going to give them in one form or another uh, uh, over and over. And then answer them as we go. Uh, one from the era of the Reformation that, that very much addresses issues of today, and the other that is far more um, uh, an issue in 2017 than it was in uh, 1517. First, first question is this. Do we or do we not need others to represent us to God and to help us along the way towards salvation? Is Christ alone enough or do we need someone to stand between us and God or between us and Jesus, in fact, and help us get to God? The Catholic Church has established a priestly class that, that mediates between people and God, just like the priests in the Old Testament stood in between God and the people. And the people would say, oh, don't let God speak to us, Moses, please stand in, in, in our stead. And then the priestly cast. A class was established and, and, and priests stood in between God and the people. Uh, Catholics provide the Pope, the bishops and the priests, uh, those who have achieved the rank of sainthood, and of course Mary, to represent us to God and to help us to get to God. 
The belief is that we need enough merit to stand righteous before the God, before God. Protestants believe God declares us righteous. Catholics believe we are made righteous or we become righteous. We're helped along and we become righteous enough to stand before God. And we find that help through the merit of others, not just the merit of Christ, but the merit of others. The question then, is Christ's work on the cross enough for me? Is it sufficient to make me acceptable to God? And does he grant me access to God? Or am I dependent on others to help me be righteous enough and stand between God and me? Second, and what seems to be a far larger question today than it was in the, in the Reformation, is Jesus even necessary for salvation? Or will any religion do as long as I'm sincere? You go out and, and just ask people on the street, what do you think about Jesus? Oh, I believe he was a very good person. Uh, what do you think about his role in helping a person get to heaven? Well, whatever uh, method you use is good. I mean, you can worship Buddha, you can... You, you, you can worship Allah uh, through the prophet Muhammad. No matter what way you choose, as long as you're sincere, it's all about the same. All religion is the same, right? We, 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 we're made better people by following this religion. And therefore, we become acceptable before God in heaven. So the question, it's not Christ alone. Is Christ necessary at all? The answer to that question will likely be determined in large part by what you think about man's nature. I mean, are we basically good until our circumstances and or others turn us into <clears throat> less than virtuous human beings? As Victor Hugo in Les Mis oddly and ironically seems to think it's this beautiful story of grace time and again. But then he says over and again... So far, I've never seen this in the movies uh, or the, the, the Broadway production, but in the book, he's over and over saying all people are innocent and then other men corrupt them. Society corrupts them. The law is mean to them and turns them into uh, evil people. But the story itself belies that idea. It's a, it's a story of grace. You are without hope and then somebody rescues you. Even a person you despise. So are we able to achieve salvation or are we utterly incapable of being good? As in good enough to stand before God with confidence that he will accept us. Scripture gives this answer from Genesis to Revelation. Our only hope for salvation is in the work of Christ on the cross. Well, Scripture gives the answer for those who believe that God speaks through His Word. And all Scripture points to Jesus' perfect life. As we've talked about a lot today, His perfect life is, is crucial in this whole plan. Sacrificial death and resurrection in power as its central focus. That's what we believe at Grace Community Church. And it's why today's text is meaningful to us, even though there is difficult truth to process in today's uh, text. If you're hung up with those in the Old Testament being saved by Christ's work on the cross. Uh, hang on, I'll explain that just a little bit later. They didn't anticipate Christ um, 
on the cross. But those who believe God's promises were saved by Jesus' sacrifice. And, and again, we'll get to that a little bit. But for now, back to the New Testament for just a moment. The Apostle Paul spelled out very clearly in the book of Romans uh, what the gospel is. And he did so methodically, just one point after another. After his introduction, uh, in which he repeatedly speaks of the gospel directly and indirectly, I think four times the, 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 the word gospel is used in the first 17 verses of chapter 1 and the, the implications of the gospel, the grace and faith that are talked about there uh, are, are mentioned several times as, as well. And after he talks about the gospel and, and the beauty of the gospel in verses 16 and 17, he begins to make <clears throat> a devastating case against our ability to come to God on our own and our need for a savior. So he takes a long time to, 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 to tell us we're not able to make ourselves worthy to stand before God. He then <clears throat> explains how Jesus is able to make us wholly righteous. And at the same time, or how Jesus, a holy and a righteous God, can look at simple men at the same time declare us to be righteous and all wrapped up in Christ. So our text this morning is Romans chapter 1, 16 to 18. Uh, and then we'll flip over to chapter 3, verses 9 to 26. Because of the length of the text, we're going to read only the first portion, Romans 1, 16 to 18. And then we'll move over to chapter 3 and work our way uh, through the text. And answer these questions, phrased in a, a, a slightly different way. One, was it necessary for Jesus to take the full weight of God's wrath upon himself to save us. And two, is Jesus our only hope for salvation? And was his death sufficient? Or do we need help to become righteous enough to gain eternal life? It's our custom to stand as we read the scripture. So I'm going to ask you if you would please stand as Romans 1 verses 16 to 18 are read. The Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel, the good news, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And with that cheery word, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for the beautiful word that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Uh, we're thankful also that we have been told very clearly that the wrath of God is being revealed against the unrighteousness and, 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 and ungodliness of men. And Lord, what that means to us, we will see in our text today. What Jesus means to us, we'll see in our text today. And as we 
exalt Christ alone. May our hearts be filled with praise for the beautiful truth that is wrapped up in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Well, this is the second time that Romans 1, 16 and 17 have been uh, read to help us uh, understand the text that we're examining a little bit more fully. Uh, it was it's really, in some ways, it's the text of the Reformation because it was in reading of Romans 1, 16 and 17 that the German monk Martin Luther uh, finally saw, it's not my works, it's not my sins, um, that, that speak against me. I, I can never know whether my, 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 my repentance is good enough. My penance, my penitent behavior is good enough to overcome my sins. And he realized it's not about that. It's about the righteousness of God that comes to us through faith. So it's, it's a primary text, but um, we're not going to get to this text and, and examine it more fully until we get to sola fide, faith alone. Uh, then it will be the main text. So after Paul states his confidence in the gospel of Christ and affirms that righteousness comes by faith, hear that again. Our righteousness comes how? By faith. Not God saves you and then he enables you to do any righteousness that we have. It's not because of our goodness. It's because of faith. Faith Brings our righteousness. And after verses uh, 16 and 17. Then Paul begins to answer the question. Why is it necessary to believe the gospel in the first place? Why is it not necessary to believe the gospel to be made righteous? Verse 18 helps us understand. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now the Greek verb, the Greek verb that is translated revealed in both um, verse 17 and 18. The righteousness of God is revealed. The wrath of God is revealed. It's in the present tense, present passive. So it, it would read literally like this. The righteousness of God is continually being revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But then he also says the wrath of God is continually, continuously being revealed. God's wrath is against all unrighteousness. God's wrath, scripture makes clear, <clears throat> flows out of his holiness and character. Now this morning, I didn't even get out of the neighborhood. I'm trying to turn right. There's a lady coming up the street who is going to turn left at that intersection. But she didn't put her blinker on. She didn't put her blinker on. So I had to sit there about another two seconds. It took me two extra seconds to get out. Now, when anger comes from me, it is usually not righteous anger. I wasn't really angry about that. But if I'd been running late, I would have been angry about that, you know. So it's like you. Slamming around the house, angry because you can't find your Bible to go to church, right? It's like, it's, our anger does not flow from a, from a righteous character, but God does. He is holy. He is perfect. And God can no more accept sin to comfortably dwell in His presence than you can allow a highly poisonous substance to enter your body without consequence. 
You wouldn't think of it, would you? You just wouldn't think of just picking up and drinking poison and say, ah, oh, this won't hurt me. God's character will not allow. You are so holy, you cannot behold sin. Habakkuk 1.13. By the way, the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4. Three times at least in the New Testament. Romans, Galatians, Hebrews. Where this great truth is made that our only hope is to believe what God has done for us. Uh, so Habakkuk 1.13 says, your eyes, are, you are, our eyes are so holy that you cannot behold sin. You cannot accept sin in your presence as it is. God's wrath is not only judicial in nature. You know, it's funny. We want to talk about God's love and say, oh, God loves you. We don't say it's a very sterile kind of love. It's just a judicial kind of a thing. No, we, 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 we feel his love as well as understand it intellectually. Well, his wrath is the same way. It's both personal and judicial. It's righteous. Our anger most often is not, but his is. In fact, if God winked at sin, if he said, oh, it's not. It's not that big a deal. Come on in like we would to a grandchild. Parents don't say that. Grandparents do. Come on, honey. It's all right. You don't worry about that. Well, I'll take care of that mean old mommy and daddy. <laughs> I'll change my will. <laughs> all of a sudden, mommy and daddy understand. <laughs> uh, so... But look, if, if God just kind of overlooks sin, then we'd worry about his righteousness, right? Well, there's no need to worry. From Romans 1, 18 through 3.20, the Apostle Paul presents a devastating case against all humanity as guilty before God because of sin. This case, his case against humanity includes religious and non-religious it, it includes those who know about God, those who don't even know God. All are guilty because of creation and because of the conscience that he tells us about in Romans chapter 2 that God has given us. All are guilty. And, and when we suppress, when we look at the world around us and say, well, it probably just happened. I think the scientists are right. Probably just happened. And, and we, we just tamp down our consciousness Conscience that's, that's helping us sort out right and wrong. The Lord is angry because men and women suppress the truth about God. They can be known and they don't seek him any further. And find the specific ways that he has made himself known in his word and through Christ. Those with the law, those without the law are guilty because all are lawbreakers. And before a holy God, every lawbreaker is fully guilty and fully condemned, regardless of the nature and the degree of the sin. To compound our problem, we are incapable of atoning for our own sins. James 2.10 says it very clearly. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And the law, along with its restrictions, its commands against sinful behavior... Gives judgment. And over and over and over. The judgment is death. As the New Testament teaches in Romans. In 7 among other places. There's nothing wrong with the law. 
The law is perfect. The problem is with us. And the law does have one limitation. It cannot give life. It can only condemn. Some people think that Jesus came as plan B when those in the Old Testament failed to live up to the law. But my goodness, if, if you break it in one little point and you're guilty of the whole thing, who's got a chance anyway? Nobody's going to keep the law. Furthermore, in Romans 5, Paul is going to make this, <coughs> the case that Adam <coughs> was the head of the entire human race. And whatever happened with Adam happened to everyone. And so when Adam sinned, the entire race fell with him. And so before we ever commit our first conscious sin, and you don't remember your first conscious sin, by the way. You were crying about one thing and pretending it was about something else, you know. And, and so before we ever commit our first Conscious sin, we are condemned. And this is not just a New Testament idea. From Romans 3.10 through 19, no less than nine Old Testament passages are either directly quoted or alluded to from four Old Testament books. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah. Look at the case laid out against humanity. Romans 3.9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? He's already made the case. Jews have the law, Gentiles don't, but both of us act as though there's a law inside of us anyway. Are we Jews any better off than those law-breaking, law-deprived Gentiles? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. <clears throat> as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Think about that. No one seeks for God. Look, I, I gave my testimony uh, to the youth on Wednesday night. I enjoyed being there with these guys. They're, they're not even awake right now. They've been on, you know, here all night last night somewhere. All night last night and hardly sleeping. It's a good thing, though, because when I get excited and I express myself in the spit flies, they don't even know it. Um, but they, I, I gave my, my testimony uh, Wednesday night. And, you know, I when, used to when I would give my testimony, I would say, and then I was seeking for something. I just didn't know what it was. And then I would say, I found the Lord. Well, over time, I began to understand I wasn't seeking for anything. In fact, none of us were. We weren't seeking for God. No one seeks for God. He seeks after us. He runs us down in his love and his mercy. Verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Does this chap you a little bit? You know, does this just make you a little bit like... I don't think that's me. Oh, yes, it is. Not one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And they didn't even have road rage. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. <clears throat> 
and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And then verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul was making a case to, against the religious people. You think you're so much better than others because you have the law and you keep it at some level, and they just live any way they want to. But you have to know that the law condemns. It condemns every person because every person is a sinner. So we partially answered the question, is Jesus necessary or is one way as good as another? Look, from our text, we know that unless something is done, we cannot stand <coughs> before, before God because the law can only condemn us. And unless God does something <coughs> to rectify our standing before him, we will justly, he will justly send us to hell. Look, there are a lot of things that we say that sound really good, sound really, it, it, it softens it a little bit, softens the, the, the truth a little bit. Like, well, God doesn't send anybody to hell. People send them on and say, no, God sends people to hell. He says it very clearly. He casts, in Revelation 20, look at it. He casts people into hell. And he does so rightly. You don't have to apologize for God. You don't understand. None of us understand God. We don't know what perfection is. We don't, we don't get that holiness at that level. <laughs> there is nothing. We think we're close to perfection, but we're not. And I think people that understand it, understand it fully. <clears throat> but then, <laughs> those two beautiful words in verse 21. But now. Wow. Look, if that sounds kind of harsh, what I've said thus far, it's really not nearly as harsh as the, as the case Paul was laying out in Romans 3. It's very direct, strong condemnation of not only sin, but sinners. But now. So we're going to read these next five verses. And as we read them, look. I just saw this, picked it up as I was studying. All five solas are right in this text. Look for them. I've got them highlighted, but you'll, you'll be able to see them. You would see it anyway. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. We can't be saved by keeping the law, so God has done something apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Here's this law that's condemning, but it's saying... But God is making another way. There's, you just wait. You're going to see there's another way. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And faith, oh, it's again here. But there is no distinction. <clears throat> for all have sinned and, and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation 
by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. You saw them all, right? Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Back to verse 21. Uh, this is a tough stretch. I get that. So I want to take just a little bit of time to explain this. And one of the reasons we need to is Robert Mount says this, this next portion of Romans 3 is generally acknowledged to be the most theologically important segment of the entire New Testament. Now, those are pretty strong words. Anybody who has taken Greek in the last 30 years, 20 years anyway, knows who Robert Mounts is. And he says that everybody, all theologians pretty well agree. This section of scripture is the most significant, theologically significant in the entire New Testament. Since we were unable to attain salvation on our own, God made a way for us to receive the righteousness of God through Christ. Can you be good enough to, be, to, to stand before God? No, but God made a way through the righteousness of Christ and the righteousness of God that comes to us through Christ. With this shift, we're told that no matter how much we want to earn our spot in heaven, we are incapable. Once again, Robert Mount says, uh, we want to earn. God will only give. God's way of righteousness has nothing to do with human performance. It is apart from the law. You get that? The righteousness of God is apart from the law. The righteousness that enables us to stand there and God to say, I, I accept you, come in, is apart from the law. We can't do anything to earn our salvation. In, in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul was pointing back to, to some of the events that happened in the Old Testament. And he wrote this to the church at Corinth. Now, these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. You know what Paul was saying? He was saying that uh, the end of the age of law has come. And now that the age of grace through faith in Christ has come. He was referring to that point in time under the old covenant when it was no longer in anybody's mind as being the way to, to relate to God. Uh, and the new age after Christ's death and resurrection had come for all. And we have been living in the last days ever since that time. I know you feel like you just look around and you say we're living in the last days. Um, I'm going to guess that people in oppressive countries who are believers have been thinking that for a long, long time. It may be the last days, may not. It's the very last days. One thing we know, since Christ's death and resurrection and the Spirit coming upon the church at Pentecost, we have been living in the last days. We are in the last days. Not only is Jesus a part of God's plan, it is Christ alone upon which our salvation depends. Furthermore, it is in Christ alone or it is nothing else. At the end of verse 22, Paul says, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, lawkeepers and lawbreakers, religious and non-religious. <clears throat> what is it that we all have in common? Verse 23, For all have sinned and have missed the mark. We fall short of the glory of God. 
Instead of condemnation, though, verse 24 tells us that God made a way for us to possess that righteousness that we need to be worthy. Who will believe through God's gracious gift of Jesus for all who will believe. In three to four weeks, we're going to examine the difference between uh, a Catholic, Catholic uh, doctrine of infused righteousness and the Protestant doctrine of imputed righteousness. The idea that righteousness is given to us in little bits as we take the sacraments, as we do penance, as, as we pray to Mary and, and we become more and more righteous and we are enabled to become righteous enough to stand before God. Imputed righteousness <clears throat> says you're incapable of that kind of righteousness. Good news, though. Gospel. Good news. I declare it, and it is so. Now, look, my wife, Linda, my first wife, was just an amazing teacher like my, my current wife, Allison. You can't imagine the ways that they teach me at home. You know, they have taught me at home all these years. You should do this. You should do that. And they really great teachers. No, they are amazing teachers. Um, Alice in fourth grade, Linda was first grade, but Linda used to say, hold a golden crown over their heads and let them grow into it. That's, that's just a great way of, of thinking about uh, helping children to become who you want them to be. Look, some of you remember being told all your life, you're a failure, you'll never do anything. You don't ever finish anything. You start, but you never finish. You're a quitter, you're this, you're that, and it, it impacts you to this very day. Whether you're 25 or 95, it, it, it just it, it stays with us. It's so do the other words. But if we say them at the expense of understanding that we are sinners who need a Savior, then that's not a good thing either. Um, so when God says, I declare you righteous, we say... You can say, I know you're a good boy and that you're going to sit there and you're going to do this, that, and the other. And he's ADHD, he ain't sitting nowhere, you know, for that kind of length of time. Um, but, but when God declares us righteous, it changes us. And we think about it in terms of, I made this decision and Jesus really changed. No, look, everything about it is his doing in our lives. And when he declares you righteous, you are righteous indeed. So is God going to, against his own demands of perfection and the law to declare us righteous? No. Look, look if you serve time in, in prison because you're a murderer, if you, are ever, if you ever murder someone for the rest of your life, can you ever not be a murderer? I mean, you don't have to murder again, but will you always be a murderer if you have, have, have murdered somebody? Yes, you will. Now, if you may serve your time in prison and get out and make great contributions to society, but you're always a, a, a murderer. So what God does for us is so much greater than saying, okay, you're a sinner, but if you pay for your sins and, and if you work at it, and, and, and you let, if you do penance for your sins, 
let others help you, then Jesus' righteousness will help you out. It will help you to become this person you need to be. It's not what God says. Jesus paid it all. When he says, I declare you righteous, it's not like, uh, well, you're, you're a better person than you used to be. He's like, no, that's it. You are righteous. And you will stand before me as the brother of Jesus. That's what we are. Joint heirs of the life that is in Christ. Amen. The truth in Romans 3, 21 to 25 may show the difference between Catholic and Protestant theology better than any other text. In verse 25, we're told that God put forward Jesus' blood as the propitiation for our sins. Now, this is a tough word. There will be a quiz. I'd like for this road to stay here, right here after the service. And there'll be a quiz on propitiation. What does propitiation mean? Well, <laughs> there's a big debate about uh, whether the Greek word hilasterion should be translated propitiation, which means an appeasing of wrath. It's, it's, it's God being appeased. His wrath being appeased. And then, or does it mean expiation, which is an atoning sacrifice or covering of sin? Look down in your Bible. I know both translations are there. Some say propitiation. Some say atoning sacrifice or atonement for sin. Something along those lines. If you've got an NIV, uh, it talks about atoning sins. ESV, King James, some of those others will say propitiation. Look, there are pros and cons for translating the word both ways. And one of the reasons that translators were reluctant to, to, to use the word propitiation is because it's the same kind of word. It was the same word that was used in uh, um, uh, idol worship and how people would make these sacrifices to appease God's wrath. Horrible, horrible sacrifices to appease God's wrath with their own firstborn children. And God is nothing like that. In fact, he showed himself to be nothing like that when Abraham, he told Abraham to go and sacrifice his son. And, and, the, and if you don't understand the culture, it, it's like, what? Why would, how, what kind of a God would do that? And by the way, always resist this temptation to say, I could never serve a God like that. You don't understand God. You don't, sometimes you don't. We don't understand the culture of the day. And the more you understand, the better it gets. But look, God does not answer to us. We answer to him. And his word is not for us to read and determine. Our, his word is simply for us to read and believe or to walk away. And it's, like, it's kind of like, well, I like this, but I don't like that. Really? Really? Are you not becoming God when you decide what's acceptable and what's not? When he told Abraham, stop, that was the miracle. It was the order of the day. Abraham didn't think anything. It was horrible for him. It was horrible to take his own son, Isaac, who was born when he was 100 years old, for goodness sake. To take him and was going to sacrifice him. And yet, it was the way of it. But God said, no, 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 no. That's not the way I operate. He stopped him. And what, what, what appeared? A lamb, there's a sacrifice. And what appeared when we most needed it at just the right time? A lamb. A lamb of God who was sacrificed. Why was it necessary for a sacrifice? To appease the wrath of God. 
That is propitiation. Atonement means covering of sin. Propitiation is an appeasement of wrath. So don't freak out if you have a different translation. It's okay. Uh, translators understood the same concept. It's just a disagreement about the precise way to translate the word. Why would we, why would God make such a big, why would we make such a big deal about God's wrath? It's only mentioned five times in the Old Now, wait a minute, that's 455 times in the Old Testament. That's one figure I've seen. I hadn't counted them up, and I, I never will, I can assure you. I'm that ADHD kid that'll get to about 12, and then I'm off to something else. Um, so, what, what happens though when God, God says over and over, I'm going to pour out my wrath. He would say, I'm going to pour out the cup of my wrath on wayward Israel and on, and on the nations. God told Jeremiah to take the cup of his wrath and make the nations drink it. And I am fully convinced it was the cup of God's wrath about which Jesus said, my father, if there's any other way, if it please let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. God was silent. Because it was the only way. That you or I. Could stand before God. Righteous. And Jesus drunk the cup of God's wrath to the last dregs. And as John Stott says, it's not that God's wrath was satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice. His blood is our propitiation. It's not that he was satisfied. The wrath of God was exhausted on Jesus. Exhausted. There's no more wrath for those who believe. The wrath is still in place for those who seek to make themselves good enough. But for those who believe, the wrath is exhausted. Thus, anyone who comes to God in repentance of sin and faith in Christ's work on the cross will be saved. Jesus' righteousness is credited to his or her account. But surely I must. No. There is no work that you can do. Jesus paid it all. And his work alone. Will suffice for you. Old Testament saints. Were saved the same way we are. Not by keeping the law. But by believing the promises of God. We're going to see that very clearly. In the weeks to come. It's just that God's promises are seen so much more clearly now in Christ. We understand the promises of God culminate in Jesus. And we know what the Old Testament saints did not know. The end of verse 25 tells us that God looked forward to the cross. Overlooking the inability of his people to save themselves through the keeping of the law. It's not that the old... You know, I hear people say, again, it's cute, but it's just it's incorrect theologically. We look back to the cross. The Old Testament saints look to the cross, forward to the cross. They knew that Jesus was going to die? No. No, they didn't. What happened? The disciples were stunned 
If there was anybody in the New Testament who understood, it was Mary of Bethany who anointed him, and probably she just did better than she understood, anointed him for his burial. If Mary of Bethany understood, she probably got it at his feet, listening carefully to him. He was pointing that way as all of the Old Testament pointed that way, but nobody saw it. The Old Testament saints weren't looking forward to the cross, but God was looking forward to the cross. How were they saved? Same way we are. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. You'll hear a lot more about that in a few weeks. The plan was always in place. Always. Counterintuitive as it is, the message of the cross is brilliant. Look at verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Through Jesus' blood, God can be just exercising his wrath against sin, but at the same time justify sinners who believe. One of the best ways to cut through the confusion when you're witnessing, when you're talking to other people, uh, one of the modern day confusions about God is simply to understand the difference between do and done. It's not what would Jesus do, so let me do that so God will be happy with me, but what has Jesus done? That's the only way God is happy with you, but he is unbelievably, incredibly pleased with you when you believe that his son took your place on the cross. He did everything. Christ alone, Jesus, paid it all. Let's pray. So as we go uh, to prayer, as we come to the Lord, do you feel this constant guilt in your life? Perhaps, maybe you felt the opposite. You felt this pride about how good you've done over the years, how hard you've tried, how much you've disciplined yourself. And in reality, though, God's word has become, if not clear, at least a gnawing uh, at your heart and mind. And, and you may be thinking, so. Maybe my best is not, no, none of our best is good enough. If you don't know Jesus, throw yourself at God's mercy. Humbly confess your sin and the, and, and, and the great sin of self-righteousness, of pride in, in your accomplishments. And then put your faith and your trust, your only hope for salvation in Christ alone. But Lord, uh, we do pray uh, that you would make the truth of this soul of Christ alone to come full, fully evident to all of us. And, and for believers, Lord, this morning who feel guilty, <laughs> well, I should know better. Lord, our only hope is Jesus. May they as well as those who don't know Christ throw themselves on Jesus and may his blood speak for them we pray 
that our hearts would be emptied of self. And that we would say, like John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. And as that occurs, Lord, fill us with the joy that is ours in Christ alone, in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you remain standing for the benediction? Identify with these guys and these young ladies over this past weekend. They heard some hard truths. Every one of them is wearing this shirt with a name tag. And I invite you to identify with what they have uh, learned this weekend. It says, My name is Warrior, Liar, Hero. Murderer, king. We learned about how David was kind of an archetype of Jesus, but not really. He understood that he failed. And he was one for whom God was looking ahead to the cross. We learned a lot about ourselves but more about how Jesus covers our sin. Let's go from here this week with this encouragement. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood, may he equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him and all glory to him forever and ever. I love you, my brothers and sisters. Let us all say to him, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.